Well, good morning. It's going to be a little bit of a heavier um, message today because our topic is on suffering. And I had actually prepared an introduction to go along with this message. And sometimes um, we can prepare sermons, compare, you know, prepare to teach. And it doesn't mean when we finish that the Spirit of God is done. And, you know, I, I just came in here this morning and I realized I couldn't just share what I had prepared because of really what's on my heart as a pastor. And I thought it would be best if I just start there and share it with you guys because it's... Um, the last couple of weeks, I was sharing with my wife, Janet, that um, I just have had a heavy heart. Um, the kind of the heaviness has come, I think, as I reflected and prayed to God, is that when you're in pastoral ministry, you're very involved with God's sheep. And there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering in our church right now. It, it's always there, but I think I've just been feeling that burden, I've just been feeling it as I walk alongside of people who are dying, walked alongside of people who lost loved ones, um, involved in marriages where we're seeing just marriages break up, some of them ending in divorce, seeing situations of abuse, just seeing situations of people that are just hurting. And as a pastor, we're not immune from walking through those things and feeling the weight of it. And this past week, Pastor Tom and I get together every week and we meet for prayer and accountability, and we try to never miss. And this week, um, I just shared with Tom, I said, you know what, instead of meeting at a restaurant, how about if I pick some food up and we'll come, I'll go, come over to your house, because their house was empty, and I said, we'll just spend some time praying. And, um, and that's what we did, and we're just kind of feeling that, that heaviness. And, you know, at the same time, you know, I look at our church, and I just see that God is doing incredible things here. One of the things that Pastor Tom and I were talking about was the, um, the illustration. And Tom, we, we went through this and we both agree. Tom has used the phrase at times saying the church is a hospital. And as we talked about it, we just said, you know what, it's, it's really not. Um, there's an aspect to the church that is a hospital. But I think a better illustration is to say that the church is like a battleship that has an infirmary in the ship. And we as Christians go through trials and suffering and sickness and illness and relational conflicts, and those things are, they, they hurt. And God knows that. And I think God's designed us in such a way that we live in a broken world and we should expect to hurt. I, I was at a conference once and it was talking about suffering and it said, you know, if you're not in a place of crisis right now, just wait because according to statistics, within three years, you will be. And we live in situations in a fallen world that they are going to hit us, and they're going to hit us hard. And ideally, as a church, we should be the kind of place where people are broken and hurting, and they can come, and they can find healing, and healing through Jesus Christ, and healing through the truth of God's Word. But God doesn't want us to stay there in a place where all we're thinking about is ourselves, because what God wants to do is God wants to heal us so that we can go back out and we can take the gospel to a lost and broken and hurting world that needs to hear about Jesus Christ. And God wants us to come alongside of others who are hurting and help them in their pain. And you see, that's what a church should be. It's a place where we are healing one another through the word of God and through the gospel. And we're helping each other to go out into a world who needs to know Jesus Christ. 
And I think that's a great illustration. Um, also, in the last couple of weeks, it's kind of interesting. I think God's been like doing this on purpose, um, as if he doesn't always. Um, my wife and I are just, for the, the two of us, for the last couple of weeks, and this is before all this came onto the scene, have been reading Paul Tripp's new book together, um, and it's called Suffering. And so it's a, it's a very good book on suffering, and I happen to be part of all of our pastors. We're part of what they call it a cluster of um, pastors within the Evangelical Free Church in the southeast Pennsylvania area. We get together once a month, and when we get together, we all read a book, and we read a chapter each time, and we get together and discuss it once a month. And the book that we're reading right now is called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It's by Mark Vrogop. And the, the subtitle says, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And so as I'm reading this, this is a really good book. Um, it's written by a person who is very well acquainted with suffering. He wrote it after he lost his daughter in childbirth and has going through the pain of that. And what does it look like in a biblical model? Because the scriptures and the Psalms are filled with lament. What does it look like to take our pain and take our suffering to God and learn how to go through a process of biblical lament? I'm going to come back to this at the, um, a little bit later in the message. But also, um, I, I bought copies of this and put them in the book booth. And by the way, again, folks, we don't make a penny off of those things. We try to get them at the best price we can get. And they're available because we want our people reading really good resources. That's why we have a book booth. But they bought us out after the first service. So um, anyway, um, if you, I'm sure we'll get some more, but this is a, um, a good book I'd recommend. And um, just in, in going through, I think as evangelical Christians in the church today, I don't think we have what I would call a good theology of suffering. Because as American believers, I think if you listen to our prayers, our prayers are more geared towards saying, God, please get me out of this trial. And the more I spend time, whether it's in Africa or the Middle East or with believers from other places, and I look at the Apostle Paul's prayers in Scripture, their prayers are not, get me out of this suffering. Their prayers are, God, strengthen me. Grow my faith in the midst of my suffering. And in this broken world, I think as Americans, we kind of feel that we are not, like we shouldn't have to suffer. And the reality is, we are all going to suffer. I've just been, um, again, meeting with countless people at our church. And I, I changed this sermon a little bit on the spot today just because last night I just heard of someone else, one of our church leaders, who um, is just found out that they have advanced cancer. I found out this morning, I was talking to one of our very own staff, and they knew that the topic was on suffering this morning. And our staff member said, I don't think I'm going to be able to sit there and get through it without tears just starting to flow because it's hard. And, you know, I prayed with one of the guys in our church just a couple days ago because yesterday he did the eulogy at his dad's memorial service. And wherever we turn, there's going to be things that hit us that are hard. And as, as Christians, I think we need a theology of suffering that recognizes we are going to suffer. And what we need to do is turn to God to ask him to give us the faith because I think sometimes we don't let our own people grieve. And that is part of life on this earth. I, as I read through this one book, I, I had to reflect on how, is, how do I prepare for memorial services? 
because rightly so, we want to celebrate. As Christians, you know, Paul even said that we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. And so when we do a memorial service, we want it to be on what we have in Jesus Christ and the life that we have with Christ in eternity. And the reality is in a memorial service, our loved ones who go ahead of us are in an awesome place. But for those who are behind, there's pain, there's grief, and there's suffering. I think we need a better, do a better job of allowing our people and helping them to understand that grief is natural and that God understands that. And I think hopefully we're going to see that in this message this morning. But before we turn to God's word, would you um, turn with me in a word of prayer? Father, we are living in a broken world today. And Lord, there's a lot of suffering all around us. And Lord, I'm sure many people sitting here this morning are in that place of suffering. As we saw in that video, Lord, they're, they're feeling like they are in the desert right now. And I pray that as we go through your word this morning that you would help us to understand what it looks like to lament in a biblical way, to take our suffering to you and allow you to heal our broken hearts, to allow you to encourage us, to allow you to set our eyes upon our wonderful, glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray as we spend this time in your word this morning now that you would open our eyes, give us insight, and Lord, change us. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would do a great and wonderful work in each one of us. Amen. Okay, well, most of us at some point have been in a desert, and like I said, um, they said if you aren't in one now, you will be soon, and it's a sad reality. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning, there's two people that we're going to encounter that are in their, what I would say, their own personal deserts of suffering that hopefully that we can learn from. Um, Benjamin read our passage in its entirety earlier, and um, we're going to just kind of pick it up and read it piece by piece. Um, I'll ask our ushers, if they would, to pass out their Bibles now. If you'd like a Bible, you don't have one with you, just raise your hand. They'll be glad to give you one. And I, I will have the Scripture up on the screen as well. And, um, and if you take one, please feel free to take it home with you as well, if you would like. Um, we're going to meet two people. One of them was a, a prominent Jewish leader. He was a synagogue ruler. He was a, a, probably a man of, of influence, probably a man of affluence and um, high social status. And we're going to see another one who was a long-suffering woman who really was an outcast in society, who was broken. She was left with nothing financially, physically, or emotionally. And we're going to see both of these people coming to Jesus Christ. Before we do that, I want to just remind us of last week. We saw how Jesus healed a man possessed with a demon, not just one, a legion of demons. Um, Tom did a good job in showing us that a legion means a whole lot. It's like five or 6,000 demons. Can you picture in one person, a man had five or 6,000 demons, and what we saw was this demon-possessed man fell at the feet of Jesus Christ. So in reality, five or 6,000 demons fell at the feet of Jesus now, they didn't fall at Jesus' feet to worship him. They fell at Jesus' feet because they recognized that he had authority over them as God himself. And that's why these demons fell at the feet of Jesus Christ. And we went on, and Mark chapter 5, verse 18, towards the end of last week's passage, said this about Jesus. 
as he was getting into the boat. And I want to stop there. You can put dot, dot, dot after that because where we're going to pick up this morning, Jesus is in that boat coming across the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to start our reading in Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd had gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. See, we meet this um, man named Jairus, who's a synagogue ruler. He's the first person that we're going to look at this morning that's facing his own personal desert experience. And I could picture Jairus. Here he is, comes to the shore, and a crowd of people standing around, and Jairus comes down. His daughter is dying, and he's thinking that maybe, just maybe, Jesus can heal her. He's probably heard about Jesus' miracles, maybe even saw one by now. And he comes down to the seashore. He looks out on the Sea of Galilee. He sees in the distance the boat. It probably looked like a little speck. And I can imagine Jairus just wringing his hands, waiting for that boat to arrive. And little by little, the boat's getting bigger as it's coming on the horizon. And for Jairus, he's just standing there wondering, is this Jesus going to be able to heal my little girl? Every minute probably felt like an hour as he was waiting for that boat to get there. And then the boat comes ashore, and here's Jairus. Picture the crowd is all around him. Up to this point in time, Jairus' theology and his religious affiliation would most likely have aligned him with Jesus' enemies because he was a synagogue ruler. He certainly was not following in Jesus' crowd of followers. And he's standing there, and all of a sudden, all these people are watching. And remember, they would have known who Jairus was. And what does Jairus do when that boat arrives and Jesus steps out? It says, Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus. We just saw that last week, didn't we? We saw demons coming and falling at the feet of Jesus Christ. Now we see this man, Jairus, who he has nowhere else to turn. His daughter is dying, and here comes Jesus, and Jairus falls at Jesus' feet, and he begs him to come with him to heal his little girl. Can you imagine for the crowd that was looking on? Here they have this synagogue ruler down on his knees at the feet of a Galilean carpenter. What was that crowd thinking? You can imagine the hush at that crowd. They would have been astonished. What is happening here? Well, let's pick up here in verse 24 as we read, as the crowd is looking on. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Let me stop there for a moment. What just happened? Who is this woman? What happened to Jairus' daughter? See, I think those questions are exactly what Mark wanted us to struggle with as we read this gospel. See, Mark used a literary form here where he took a story and he embedded it inside of another bigger story and makes us want to know, well, what exactly is happening? Now, I, I, have a, I could imagine that um, Jairus was thinking the same thing. 
He's here walking with Jesus. He's thinking, yes, he's going to come and heal my daughter. And all of a sudden, this woman comes onto the scene and everything kind of stops. It probably was very frustrating for Jairus. And what we see now is this woman, by coming on the scene, is the second person today that's in a personal desert experience that is coming to Jesus Christ. She'd been experiencing bleeding for 12 years, this text says. Now, for us, bleeding for 12 years would be a medical problem. For a woman in the first century Jewish culture, to have a bleeding disorder for 12 years was devastating. You see, because if you are bleeding and you have a condition of bleeding, it means you are now ritually and ceremonially unclean. And an unclean person was not allowed in the town, was not allowed into another person's home, was not allowed into the synagogue, was not allowed into the market. This woman was a social outcast who had been bleeding for 12 years. And here she comes to Jesus Christ. And if you think about this, this woman, by having this condition, was breaking all of the rules by coming into the town and especially reaching out to touch Jesus Christ. You see, something gave her the faith that she was willing to break all of the rules, to risk all of those things, to come to Jesus. This was a pretty profound moment. Not only was she physically suffering, but she was financially bankrupt. Said she spent all of her money on doctors and her condition only worsened. She was desperate and she was broken. So now we have two very desperate, very broken individuals in our story. Let's pick up in verse 27. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. See, do you really think that Jesus didn't know who touched him? He's the Son of God. Jesus knew other people's thoughts throughout Scripture, we can see. See, I believe what happened here was Jesus wanted to show to this woman that it was her faith in him and not her physical touch that had cured her. And I think Jesus also wanted to set an example for all of those onlookers looking around as well, as well as Jairus who would have been standing there watching what was taking place. So Jesus basically stops everything, asks, who was it that touched me? And the different commentaries talk a little bit about what was this woman's faith like at this moment? Now I want to kind of cut through all that and just share what my perspective. I believe that this woman had a very genuine childlike faith in Jesus Christ. Her theology probably wasn't very deep. I don't think she realized that he was the son of God. She may have thought that he was a great prophet of God who was able to do miracles, was able to cure her of her sickness. And it was probably mixed in with something that was very common in that day. And that was the belief that if somebody touched the garments of somebody great, some of the greatness of that person would pass through those garments to the person who touched it. 
So I think this woman probably came to Jesus with a combination of a, a childlike faith mixed in with this kind of religious superstition. And she comes up and she touches Jesus Christ. What happens when something, a woman that's ritually impure, touches the Son of God? Haggai chapter 2 makes it very clear that when something that is clean touches something that is unclean, the thing that is clean becomes defiled. And now all of a sudden, we see this unclean woman touching the purity of Jesus Christ. And rather than him becoming defiled, what we see is that the unclean woman is immediately healed and made pure. See, that's the Savior that we have. See, as she touches Jesus, she's immediately cleansed. And I think her heart is now opened up for what Jesus wants to do next. Let's pick up in verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, of where, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Here we have somebody else falls at the feet of Jesus Christ, a broken and unclean woman. We just saw the demons. We saw Jairus, the synagogue ruler. And now we see this unclean woman. Their first reaction when they come upon Jesus is they fall at his feet. Now, if you think about this, we now have the spiritual world. We have the wealth and the affluence of this world. And we have the brokenness of this world all responding the same way in falling at the feet of Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes it very clear. He says, your faith has made you well. See, it wasn't any religious superstition. It wasn't her reaching out and touching. It was her faith in Jesus that he clearly showed is what cured her. Now think about it. That was a throng of people around there. Kind of it's like a picture if you're, um, I don't know, you're at Six Flags, you're at a concert somewhere, or you're, you know, you're trying to get into an Eagles game. And there's like hundreds of people you know, tossing and bumping. And, and Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Well, I guarantee you, hundreds of people probably touched him. And the scriptures don't show anywhere that any of those people who accidentally bumped into Jesus were healed of anything. It doesn't say that Jesus' power had gone out to someone else. The only time it says that Jesus' power went out, it's when this woman reaches out to Jesus with a display of genuine faith. And then Jesus Christ, because of her faith, heals that woman. I want to point out something else, and I think this will help us. I, I know a lot of times when I'm in counseling and I'll hear people and I'm talking to them about coming to church and getting involved, I'll talk to them about, you know, a relationship with Christ, and, and they'll say, they'll say, Pastor, you have no idea what my life has been like. You know what they're saying to me? I'm not good enough to come to Jesus. I know of other situations where I've had people say, oh, I tried one of your Bible studies at, R at Riverstone Church, but you know what, all of those people in that Bible study, they know so much, and, and I, I just don't know anything. And I said, you know what, first off, probably half of the people in that Bible study are thinking the same thing you are. And I said, for another, we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be cleaned up before we come to Jesus Christ. If we look at the examples in Scripture here, these two, these, these two people today, what do we see with Jairus? 
He had to set aside his social standing, his religious affiliation, his position in the synagogue, probably his wealth. None of that could, bring his, could save his daughter. Jesus had that all stripped away, and he came to Jesus in simple faith. And then we see this woman. She tried doctors. She tried everything she could do. Nothing that worked. And she comes to Jesus Christ with a very simple faith. Folks, you don't have to have your act together to come to Jesus. I want to encourage you, picture in your mind each of these people falling at the feet of Jesus, not leaning upon anything else but him. And that's what he wants you to do as well. And this woman came to Jesus Christ in all of her pain, and she left healed in peace. It's a beautiful story, and the story of this woman, I already mentioned, it kind of, it comes as an interruption to the rest of the story. And by now, I wonder, we're going to get back to Jairus in a moment, because we can, that's where the story goes. But imagine him, he's been standing on the sideline watching Jesus heal this woman, seeing her display of faith. And now we pick up in verse 37. I'm sorry, in verse 35 and 36. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Now, one of the things we see this here, that um, we see this remark, that they're basically saying, Jairus, your daughter is dead. And what we saw all along was Jairus had this faith in Jesus Christ that he was willing to risk everything when his daughter was dying. So he had displayed faith when he had a dying daughter. The question we have as we go through the rest of this, is Jairus' faith going to be strong enough now that his daughter is dead? So that's a question to ask. Now, as we look through this, we see this amazing, I love Jesus' response. Jesus hears the people in the crowd saying to Jairus, Jairus, your daughter is dead. And what does Jesus do? I think it was probably one of the most compassionate expressions of God that we can find in the New Testament. I'm reading into that a little bit, but I think that's what took place here. Because Jesus immediately turns to Jairus and says, Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Kind of reminds me of John chapter 14, when Jesus shared with his disciples that he was going to be dying, that he was going to be leaving them, and the disciples were distraught. They were in fear. Here, first off, they loved Jesus. They had lived with him for three years and traveled with him and lived with him, and he was their teacher. But not only that, the, the Romans and the Jews, they wanted to kill Jesus. They also wanted to wipe out his followers. They wanted to end this. So their lives were very much at risk. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is telling them, I am going to die, and I will be leaving you. And what does Jesus tell them? Do not be afraid. For where I go, I prepare a place for you. And you see, we see the compassion of God flowing out of Jesus Christ. And I want to assure you, folks, when you are in that desert place yourself, to picture yourself hearing the very voice of Jesus Christ. Do not be afraid. Just believe. And as we go on, what we see here is that Jairus had already displayed this amazing faith. He risked everything. And as the crowd looks on, they say to him, they say, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. You see, if Jesus Christ were not God, that, that comment would make total sense. Why bother the teacher anymore? 
Jairus, just come home. He can't do anymore. But you see, what they're not realizing is that Jesus Christ is not just a teacher. And Jesus, being the God himself, we can see how foolish that statement really is. Because now, all of a sudden, we have Jesus turning to Jairus in the midst of this, saying, Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe. You see, if Jairus looked upon Jesus as more than just a teacher, that statement would make total sense as well. Just believe. Because you know what? Jairus already watched Jesus heal this woman. Jairus heard all of the miracles that Jesus was performing. Jesus already displayed that he has authority over so many things. And now Jesus is asking him to follow him and believe. Let's pick up and read the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him, except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hands, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. I think at the end, that little statement was put in there. I think it just shows the compassion of Jesus Christ. He realizes in this physical world, we have physical needs. Not only is he providing the spiritual healing, restoring her life, but he's also looking upon her material needs as well. I think that's something that we can learn about from Jesus Christ. Well, we've realized already that Jesus, in his displays, had authority over demons and the spiritual world. He had authority over sickness. And now Jesus is showing here that he has authority over death. I'm going to explore that in just a moment. Because what I'd like to do now, we finished reading the text. And I want to ask two questions that we, I want to see us answer. The first one is, who is Jesus? And that's what Mark was trying to show us here in chapters 4 and 5. Who is this Jesus? Remember back in chapter 4 with the this calming of the sea with the disciples? His own disciples may make the statement, who is this that has authority over the winds and the sea? You see, Mark is trying to show us who this Jesus Christ really is. The second question I want to ask, what can I, each of us, learn from this to help me face suffering in this broken world? And I don't think we can answer adequately the second question until we answer the first. Because our, the way we answer that first question provides our answer to the second question to us as believers in Jesus Christ. So let's go back. And I, what I want to do is I want to take a look and go back and picture in chapter 4, kind of in the middle of chapter 4, the disciples are in their boat, Jesus is in the boat, and a storm comes up, a, a bad storm. What is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. The disciples, they rush to Jesus to wake him up and they say, Teacher, again, here's that, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And what does Jesus do? He tells his disciples to not be afraid and he calms the winds 
and he calms the seas. And they're astounded at the display of his authority. So here we have Jesus Christ, not just some ordinary teacher, with authority over creation, over nature. We see again that Jesus displayed his authority over the spiritual world with the demons. We see his authority over sickness. And now with the healing of Jairus' daughter, we see his authority over death itself. Who has this kind of authority but God himself? I mentioned earlier that as, um, as they were looking upon these things happening, that there was something completely new was happening in this world. Think about it. At the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he talked about the coming of the kingdom of God. I want to turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and this is Jesus saying this. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here we have Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry. He's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if we think about that, the kingdom of God, we sometimes think of the kingdom as like a physical place, kind of like King Arthur and his knights, you know, they had their, their kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a physical place. The kingdom of God is referring to God's kingly rule. It's his authority, it's his lordship, and it's his sovereignty. And all things that are subject to God's sovereignty are part of and fall into the kingdom of God. So Jesus already now just displayed when he came onto the earth doing things that nobody in history had ever done. Showing his authority over nature, over demons, over sickness, over death. Folks, guess what's happening here? Jesus is giving us a display of the coming of the kingdom of God. And one day... All of that is going to be completely removed. As believers in Jesus Christ, one day we're going to have no more natural disasters, no more spiritual warfare, no more sickness, and no more death. But the reality is we're not there yet. Once you remember, it's kind of a, it's an already and not yet. You see, we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're given victory over death already. You already have eternal life. It's yours. It's like you have that card in your back pocket. It's mine. I'm going to heaven. But you see, we have to go through a lot of suffering to get there. It's an already and not yet. But we have a Savior who has authority over all of those things. And we can start to see his glory in display. So, as we answer, who is Jesus? He's fully God. He's somebody that we can put all of our trust in. But then... As we go back to that second question, what can I learn from this to help me face suffering in this broken world? We saw that Jairus and we saw that this sick woman fell at the feet of Jesus Christ. They came with all of their pain and suffering and fell at Jesus' feet. Well, he's not physically here right now for us to like touch him, but where do we go with our suffering as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, we do. We fall at the feet of Jesus, but I want to unpack just for a couple minutes what that looks like. I mentioned that um, this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and the subtitle is Discovering the Grace of Lament. In this book, uh, Mark Rogop does a great job. I, I think I said this earlier that um, he wrote this as he was coming out and through the healing process of losing his own daughter in childbirth. And he walks us through some of that healing. You can feel his own pain in this. And he does a great job of painting the picture that we live in a very broken world. 
And the book goes on and it walks through the discipline of lament as a godly response to suffering. And he shows that um, lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Now, thankfully, this is really good, you know, biblical exegesis in this because he goes to the Psalms and works through the Psalms of lament to show there's a pattern that's developed in these Psalms of lament that God is showing us in our sorrow, this is how we can respond. I want to show you, it's kind of a cycle that he takes us through. Whoops. And that cycle is turn, complain, ask, trust. Now, what he means by turning, he means in the midst of our sorrow, just like Jairus did, just like this woman did, there's a point of turning to Jesus Christ. Now, it's a lot like, think about what it looks like when we sin. What's our answer to sin? We repent, right? And a repent is a turning from our sin and turning to God. So if we want to go through a biblical process of lament, we do have to take that step of turning to Jesus. Now, I think sometimes Christians are afraid of the next step. God wants to hear our hearts. God wants us to bring our complaints to him. And I think sometimes we're afraid. But you know what? Many of those thoughts, and a matter of fact, all of those thoughts are already in our minds. Do we think that God doesn't hear it already? See, what God wants to hear us as his children is to come to him. And if you read the Psalms, it's okay to say, God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? God, why me? God, why am I the one with cancer? God, why did you take so-and-so from me? God, why? Where are you? He wants to hear your voice. He wants to hear your complaints. And it's okay because he loves you that much. Then the next step is ask. I like the way he phrased ask. Sometimes we, like, I think Americans, I mentioned earlier, we ask that God will remove this trial from me. But what it says is asking is to ask God to respond in a way that is consistent with his character. And if we know the character of God, we then can ask God and see, this is where trust comes in. Because as we ask and we realize who God is, we can start trusting that he knows and wants what is best for us. And just like Jairus, just like this woman, emptying themselves of everything, it means letting go of everything we have and saying, God, I trust you in the midst of this storm that you know better than I do. Because sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to. But trusting is to say, God, my heart is broken. God, my pain is unbelievable but I trust that you know what is best. And the beautiful thing about this book, I think it's because it was written by somebody who was in the midst of this himself. He says, you know what? This is not a simple, magical formula. What this is, is something that as we're in sorrow, as we're in pain, that we have to go back to again and again and again. And see, as we do that, God starts to take our focus off of only our pain and he starts to put our focus on the great God that we have. And we recognize that he has authority over all of these things and our trust in God begins to grow. And one of the things he points out, it's very easy though to get stuck in any one of these places. Think about complaining. And I know it. I've seen it in counseling. 
We see people that just, they cry out to God, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me, God? Why? And they never leave that place. And what ends up happening? They become angry and they become bitter. And sometimes they never move beyond that. See, it's very easy for us to get stuck in these areas. And that's what we have to remember and go back and look at God's faithfulness in the past so that we can trust him to look forward. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I knew I wouldn't have time to do this. I want to give you a psalm of lament. I want to give you an easy one because it's a nice short one. It's Psalm 13. I'd love you to read Psalm 13. And as you read through it, just mark the verses and say, where is it that the psalmist is turning to God? And then say, where is it that he's pouring out his heart and complaint? Where is it that he's asking God to act? And then where is it in which verses do I see the psalmist trust in God? And you can do that with any psalm of lament, but Psalm 13, it's kind of nice and short and concise, and I think it'll be a good practice for you. So this morning, we have seen two very different people who have come to God in all of their brokenness, in their personal desert experience. And in essence, we've watched them kind of walk through a very similar pattern. They turned to God. They complained. How about the woman with her sickness? I've been to so many doctors and nothing has worked. And I've spent all of my money. I have nothing left. She didn't say that, but Jesus knew it. And it's in scripture, so we knew it was true. And then we see that she asks by reaching out with a touch. We see that Jairus asks, please, please heal my daughter. And then we saw their trust. They were willing to risk everything to go to Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage all of us. One of the things that we can do is we can remember, if, if, you, look in the, if you look especially in the, in the um, books where we see the prophets, we see the prophets doing a lot of looking back and remembering. There in the midst, the, the Assyrians or the Babylonians would be taking over. They were suffering in horrible ways. But you would see that the prophets would always be telling of the wonderful deeds of God in the past, of his creation, and especially of the miracles in Egypt and the Exodus. And they would say, and one day he's going to restore us as well. So we as believers in Jesus Christ, we can look to the glory of God and his acts in the Old Testament, but we can also look to the cross. And we can see that Jesus, as our Savior, suffered just like we did. He understands your suffering. And he went to the cross and he gained an incredible victory on that cross. And he defeated death on that cross on your behalf. Then as you look through the New Testament, we can see the truths of who Jesus Christ really is. So when we look at our suffering and we want to turn into him in our own lament, we have already know who God is, who Jesus is, and how he's acted on our behalf in the past. And we can say, Lord, I can trust you even though it hurts so very much. Well, I know there's people here today that are suffering. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And I know, folks, trust me, it's coming to you too. And we all, how do we as believers in Christ suffer in a way that turns our hearts back to God so that we can be healed? We may never forget. The sorrow may never all go away. But we can set our eyes upon God and find our trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the the genuineness of Scripture. We thank you for these psalms that cry out with pain. 
We thank you that we see broken people coming to Jesus and they find their healing in him. And Father, I pray that we can learn to lament in a biblical way, that we can find our healing in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we as a church would be a place where we turn to one another to help in our healing, that we can point one another to Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we can be a place where healing takes place. And then, Lord, we go back out into the battle, the battle that you have called us to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, and to love people the way you loved when you were here. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would transform each of us today.